Hello, I'm your host, Inman Narwin, and this is the Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness podcast, a monthly podcast of anarchic literature, where we take our monthly zine and turn it into an audio feature and interview the author. You can get a copy of the monthly zine by signing up for our Patreon at patreon.com slash strangers in a tangled wilderness, or you can read for free at tangledwilderness.org. This month, we have part one of a short story by Matthew Dougal, Blood, Soil, and Frozen TV Dinners. It is really a lot of fun and plays with an idea we talk about a lot at Strangers, which is preparedness, but this story explores preparedness from the perspective of a center-right parent experiencing a collapse in society, which sounds funny when I try to explain it without giving anything away, but trust me, it's fun. We don't have an interview with the author for this episode, but tune in next month for part two and an interview with Matthew Dougal. However, stick around after part one for a very seasonal and uh, what turned out being very long word of the month, where for once a commercial tradition has a surprisingly cool origin instead of a weird and fucked up one. As always, our feature is read by the wonderful Bee Flowers. Enjoy. Blood, Soil, and Frozen TV Dinners by Matthew Dougal. Narrated by Bee Flowers. Published by Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness. Part 1. Katie sat wide-eyed, beneath the kitchen table and hugged her knees to her chest. She was shaking, vibrating visibly. Tanner put his finger to his lips and prayed that her silent tears would remain just that. There was no time to stop and calm her down. Not again. He moved slowly around the kitchen, fumbling through cupboards and pulling out pre-wrapped packages of food. Always be prepared. Tanner had practiced this before things went dark, but it was different doing it for real. His hands hadn't been so shaky back then. A noise on the porch. His body froze before his mind registered the sound. Tanner dropped into a crouch and crossed the room to the window, willing every cell in his body to radiate confidence toward his baby girl. His hand found the Glock 17 at his belt and he brought it up in front of him, the familiar feel of the grip reassuring. He took a breath, steadied himself, and raised his eyes to the level of the windowsill. The muscles in his thighs steeled, and he remained unblinking, utterly still, staring out into the darkness. After 30 or 45 nerve-twinging seconds, Tanner drew breath and relaxed. His quads were burning, and they thanked him as he straightened. He could hear the specter of his ex-wife in his head, telling him to lose some weight, exercise more. Well, she'd left, and that was 135 pounds gone right there. She'd probably say that was a good start. An unbearably loud ringing pierced the silence and sent him diving to the floor, landing awkwardly on his gun and sounding a crash through the kitchen. A keening whine came from under the table, Katie shaken from her silence. The doorbell. Feeling foolish, Tanner twisted over his shoulder and hissed at his daughter to be quiet. 
Still prone, he crawled toward the hallway in the most reassuring manner he could manage and pointed his Glock at the front door. Footsteps, outside. Then a shadow appeared at the window. Tanner's heart pounded in his ears, more violent pulses of silence than sound, and his vision blurred as panic flooded his body. He'd heard the early reports of armed groups in the streets, some sort of fighting downtown, but he hadn't really believed they would come here. His legs were weak, and he silently thanked God that he was already on the floor. The shape at the window didn't move, frozen in the gloom, silhouetted by flickering light coming from the street. As Tanner's head cleared, he tried to take stock of what was happening. The apparition was vaguely man-shaped, but shorter and slighter, an ethereal grace evident even in its stillness. A voice called out, muffled through the door, the guttural sing-song completely at odds with the sleek form at the window. Tanner couldn't understand everything, but he thought he caught the words, little girl. A second shape mounted the porch alongside the first, similarly short, but squat and stocky, and grunted something to its companion in an alien tongue. Fluorescent light flooded the yard, and the voices momentarily disappeared beneath the growl of an angry engine. Tanner's breath caught. His trembling finger hovered over the trigger, and he willed the barrel to stay its swaying dance. Two shots exploded outside, loud shots from a much bigger gun than his. The creatures spun to face this new threat, their chatter rising in pitch and speed. They sounded panicked. Tanner sensed his opportunity. He was forgotten. All those hours of training kicked in, and muscle memory took over as he rose to one knee, took a two-handed grip, and unleashed a furious hail of fire at his front door. Keep your filthy hands off my daughter! He fired until he felt the Glock stop kicking. The magazine spent. As the cacophony faded, he realized he was screaming. Tanner! It's me, Blake! Stop shooting, goddammit! They're gone! Blake? Tanner mechanically reloaded his gun. Why? His throat was raw, his voice barely audible, even to him. He swallowed, fighting to control his breath, and cleared his throat. What are you doing here? Came to see if you were okay. Figured you and the kid might need a hand. A stocky, heavily muscled figure wearing fatigues and a plate carrier stepped up to the porch, visible through the splintered ruins that had been the front door. A halogen glow lanced through the holes, like the brilliant aura of some kind of avenging eagle. When this shit spread across the river from the city, we locked down. It was touch and go for a while, but things quieted down eventually. When they did, I came straight over. Good thing I got here when I did. The quick little fuckers ran for it, but I think you hit one of them. Figure stopped, pulled down the red, white, and blue bandana covering its mouth, and spat. Tanner had never been more relieved to see his buddy's foul-mouthed face. Or his M1A SOCOM-16 rifle. We're all right. Tanner's voice was exhausted his body shivering as the adrenaline fled. Thank God I was prepared. Still, it's good to see you. Prepared shit. His buddy grinned. 
I've been telling you for years to get something heavy duty. Blake kicked the splintered remains of the door and his grin faded. You can't stay here. Those things will be back. Grab your girl and jump in the truck. Let's head to mine. She'll be safe there. The grin returned. Prepared shit. An hour later, they were sitting in the hole, as Blake affectionately called it. The hole was both name and description, although it perhaps undersold the amount of effort that had gone into its construction. Attached to the garage by a short, downward-sloping corridor, the hole was a full-blown bunker that spread underneath almost the entirety of Blake's backyard. Tanner was sitting in the main chamber eating Top Ramen, chicken flavor. They had made the half-mile journey in silence. Lights down on the Tacoma, Tanner jumpy, Blake grim, Katie in a state of shock. The streets had looked completely foreign. The usual calming glow of LEDs replaced by the orange flicker of scattered flames. The familiar hum of traffic had been gone. Instead, gunfire had cracked in the distance. Blake's wife Lauren had buzzed them inside after Blake confirmed his identity via video feed three times at the gate, the door, and the entrance to the hole. The security was impressive. Lauren had ushered them inside, AR-15 at the ready. This is prepared, Blake was saying, as Katie stared blankly at her untouched ramen. Old owners, they had this backyard full of fruit trees, vegetables, fucking kale and kohlrabi. Look at is that gonna do, I said. You gonna hide in the pumpkin patch with a slingshot? Idiots. Anyhow, me and Lauren, we wanted to be ready, so I've been building this the last two years. Ain't no one knows about it, not even the contractors. Blake sliced a finger across his throat and laughed. <laughs> I'm joking. But they were from one of them Mexican countries, had no idea what they were building. Good workers, though. They came here the right way, and I did the security all myself. Tanner laughed too, but at what he didn't quite know. You took this all real serious. Yes, sir. You never really believed, but we did. Earl Swanson was right. This here's been a long time coming. It's just like he said, and we listened. And here we are, while you was laying on the floor waving around that little water pistol of yours. Tanner had listened too, but apparently not well enough. There was only so much time he could watch an angry man on TV shouting about the state of the nation, no matter how prophetic he was turning out to be. Tanner tried to put up a strong front and flex his knowledge. He had listened, damn it. This it then? The invasion? Earl said they've been preparing it for years, brainwashing people, recruiting sympathizers and traitors. It's worse than that. The invasion started way back. We just didn't notice. Well... Most of us didn't. Earl did. He tried to warn us that the aliens would start infiltrating, landing in remote parts of the country, blending in, looking just like us. Blake spat. Well, not quite like us, but close fucking enough hiding out and biding their time. And now it's out in the open. Tanner looked from his friend's face to his daughter's, scared and staring, and trailed off. He may have been listening but he sure as hell didn't understand. What's happening? Tanner asked. We've been laying low at home, locked down, and trying to wait out whatever this is. We haven't heard a thing since the power cut three days back. 
He could feel a surge of emotion building, pent-up adrenaline and stress and fear and loneliness rolling over him in a wave as they were released. His stoicism wobbled. We're... Katie is scared and confused and tired and sick of hiding and we're all alone. What is all this? What's happening? Tanner realized he was shouting and stopped, taking a deep breath and lowering his voice. Blake, man, what the hell is going on? Blake never flinched. Just ran his tongue over his teeth in thought while he watched Tanner's outburst through hooded eyes. Nah, we don't know nothing for sure. Swanson's been off every two days, since just after shit started going down. Said he was right, that it sure as shit seemed like those aliens he'd been warning us about were making a move, and the whole fucking lot of us did nothing. Well, seems like it blew up in our face. Last thing he said was he's heading somewhere safe to keep broadcasting, and he'd let us know when he'd found out more. Blake paused, sucked his teeth. We've had the TV and radio on nonstop since then, since we fired the generator up. Nothing. Lauren leant forward. There was something a couple days back. Nothing useful. Blake cut in. He spat. Same old fucking commie station, same old crap. He took over the channels, emergency broadcasting, said there was a protest. Stay inside, all under control, daddy government's here, blah blah blah. He laughed. Hell of a protest. More like an insurrection. Double-speak bullshit. So what's the plan? We hide out, lay low, wait for the military? The troops ain't coming, chief. Blake grimaced. Alien tentacles go deep. Probably strolling around in general stars by now. The politicians just handing over the keys. This president will have us kissing their feet before dinner. Nah, if we want to fight back, we can't rely on the fucking bunch of secretaries and scribes. We hole up here, wait for instructions. He laughed again. Huh, hole up in the hole. That's funny. That grin was starting to get on Tanner's nerves. Instructions from who? How long is that going to take? Who's going to fight back against this? I know some people from back in the old days. Good people. There's still patriots out there who won't give up this country without a fight. Tanner still bristled with questions, but he was starting to feel relieved. There were people in charge, and they had a plan. That was something he could work with. What if it takes weeks, months? Do we have food for that long? Blake settled further into his chair, grinned that cocky grin. I do. Don't know about you. Before the words were even out of his mouth, he was already raising his palms. Chill out, I'm joking. I'll put it on your tab. You're a lawyer. I know you're good for it. Show him, babe. Lauren got up and went over to a large yellow flag hanging on the concrete wall, pulling it aside to reveal a long, narrow room that ended abruptly at a large steel door. She flicked on the light. Dry storage, she said, gesturing at the shelves lining both walls. Packets of ramen, boxes of cereal, rows of whiskey, and gleaming stacks of cans stared down at Tanner. And cold storage. Lauren continued as she stepped over to the door, kicking aside two enormous tubs of supplements and pulling it open to reveal a walk-in freezer. Tanner followed her inside as she happily chatted away, 
showing everything off like a house-proud hen. We've got everything we need. Steaks, hot dogs, chili, hamburgers, mac and cheese, chicken parmesan, mashed potatoes, whatever you want. There's a well, too, over on the other side. We had that dug last summer. Tastes a bit funny, but it won't hurt you. Tanner was hardly listening. He had never seen anything like it, never imagined anything on the scale. Blake really had taken preparing for the end of the world seriously. The freezer room was filled wall-to-wall with a treasure trove of gourmet excess, thousands upon thousands of frozen TV dinners. Tanner stared at his microwaved salmon filet, fries drooping from his fork. Out of habit, he was eating in front of the TV with Katie, though the display hadn't changed in however many days it had been. Just the red, white, and blue logo, a tile flipping between ads for pillows, brain pills, and frozen food, and the same scrolling red banner. Breaking. The United States of America is under attack. Stand by for updates. Katie was poking at her food silently, barely eating. Still no appetite. Tanner had told her they were safe, told her he wasn't going to let anyone hurt her, told her a hundred times in different ways that she was his precious little girl and he would make sure she was okay. It had made no difference. She had just looked up at him with big, frightened eyes that pulled at Tanner's heart. The only time she had spoken in the last 24 hours was to ask why he had tried to shoot people. Of course she didn't understand. Maybe he should ask Lauren to talk to her. The TV display glitched, blipped, flicked to static, and then to black. Tanner shoveled the fries into his mouth and rubbed his eyes. He'd been staring at a blank TV for too long. He chewed and stretched, squeezing his eyes shut and trying to straighten out his aching back. Earl Swanson was on TV. Tanner blinked a few times to make sure he was seeing straight. Swanson's shirt was wrinkled, his hair a mess, and his signature bow tie slightly crooked, but his face wore that familiar expression of righteously indignant bewilderment. It was him. Blake! Blake, get in here! Swanson was in what looked like a large living room rather than his usual studio. Bookshelves and a TV cabinet were visible behind him. There were shadows under his eyes, and wrinkles were clearly visible without his usual TV makeup but his eyes were as sharp as ever. There was a strength to them, piercing the screen, full of faith and fire. It felt like he was in the room. He looked like he'd been in a fight and won. He was back. Good evening, America, and welcome to Earl Swanson tonight. Blake! Blake stuck his head through the door. What? I'm working out. Give me a... No shit. Blake stepped into the room. He was topless, breathing heavily. His stomach was shiny with sweat, pooling and running down the chiseled channels between his well-defined muscles before disappearing behind the low-riding waistband of his camo pants. Tanner realized he was staring and felt his cheeks flush as he snapped his eyes back to his friends. Blake, it's... Shut up. I'm trying to listen. The rebuke slapped Tanner back to the present and back to the TV. He surreptitiously sat a little straighter and sucked in his gut, trying to ignore the heat rising in his face. Cities up and down the West Coast. 
From Seattle to San Diego, the alien invaders and the traitors from among our own citizens have taken control, sowing chaos and destruction. Order has broken down, and anarchy rules in the streets. Yet we hear nothing but silence from the White House. The elites in Washington won't do anything about this. They encouraged it. They caused it. Now, it is up to patriotic Americans to stop this existential threat. It is up to us, to you and me and the other patriots out there. If you value the American way of life, if you respect the principles that built the greatest nation ever imagined, if you care about your family and the future of your children, then the time has come to stand up. Your country needs you. I have been warning about this day on this very program for years. If you have been listening, you will be prepared for this betrayal. You know what to do. Find other true Americans who are ready to fight for our civilization and our culture. Defend our Western values against this attack by anarchists and aliens who wish to destroy us. They tried to take our guns from us, to disarm us, and failed. Now is the time to use them. Seek out the prepared, the militias, the heroes. Fight back. Show them that we will not allow it. I will be moving to an undisclosed safe location so I can keep you informed. You know your job. I am doing my part. Will you do yours? Swanson sat erect and defiant, no less commanding for his disheveled appearance. His willpower flowed from the screen in waves, washing over the watchers. It was compelling. It was urgent. It was the only option. The screen went black. Swanson Gaze bored into Tanner long after the TV went dark, burning with righteous fire, lip-curling with fury. The heat in Tanner's cheeks sharpened, focused, and began to spread into his chest and throughout his body. There was only one thought in his mind. We gotta go. It took him a second to realize that Blake had spoken the words out loud. We do, but where? I don't know anyone like that. You know me, and I know people. Don't worry about that. We gotta go to Baker City. I talked to one of my buddies from the Marines this morning. He's headed to join one of the militias out east. They might not be big, but they're hard. They're something. Tanner looked at Blake blankly, unable to quite comprehend what he was being told. Days of no news, no action. Now everything all at once? But what's in Baker City? Don't you know anyone here? This is where we live, where we have a hole, where we have a safe base. Blake was clearly agitated, shifting from foot to foot. It's not safe. Weren't you listening? It's fallen. The military ain't doing jack like I fucking told you they wouldn't. Blake stopped bouncing and steadied himself. But my buddy said the boys in Baker held out. It was bloody, but they held strong. If we can get there in a hurry, we can join the caravan headed for Boise. Baker? Boise? What the Boise? Surely it's safer in Texas or, or Texas? And how far away is that? Look, I don't know nothing about nothing, but I know I ain't looking for safer. All I know is I got buddies in Baker, and they say Boise, and they are the fucking resistance. We got our orders, soldier. The West had been invaded, destroyed, gone. 
You heard Swanson, same as me. Grids are down, water's down, TV's down, mostly anyway. Skies half full of fire and smoke, gangs roaming the streets, traitors and aliens taking or breaking whatever they can get their thieving hands on. Tears came to Blake's eyes. It's a fucking mess out there, buddy. Anarchy. They've burned the lot. It was a lot to chew on. Tanner put a piece of salmon in his mouth. I'm not going to let some filthy aliens take my home, fuck my wife, invade my country, and steal a goddamn U.S. of A. The fight is right there, and I'm going to fight it. Are you? Tanner's brain was spinning, but his blood was still hot from Swanson's speech. Blake's fire, delivered standing there half-naked like a Steven Seagal action figure, was rousing something inside him. His country needed him, and he felt the call in his bones. He put down his fork. He swallowed. He rose. Of course I'll fight. I'll put a bullet in every alien who steps foot on American soil. I'll put every collaborator in the dirt. He saw himself next to Blake, riding shotgun as they made a fighting escape through the streets. He saw a heroic journey to Baker City, filled with danger and righteous violence. He saw a triumphant return at the head of an army, cleansing his city with purifying flame. And he saw Katie, small and fragile and beautiful, perfect and terrified. The flame wavered. But I'm fighting for her, Tanner gestured. I got my little girl, and I'm not so red hot I'm riding out guns blazing to meet these savages with her hanging off my arm. She's the future of this country, and that's a future we have to protect. Tanner's surprise, Blake took half a step back. Shit. I know, man. Katie and Lauren, the innocent and the pure, I'm thinking of them, too. He dropped his shoulders, but held Tanner's gaze. But it's not safe for them here, neither. We're on our own, and all hell has broken loose up top. We fight for them, and they are the reason we have to fight. Tanner paused and nodded. He reached out and placed his hand on his friend's shoulder, fingers gripping the sweaty skin. Let's go pack the truck.
And now for the word of the month. The word of the month this month is jack-o'-lantern, which very literally means jack with the lantern or jack of the lantern. It's that simple, right? Well, sort of. Like many idiomatic phrases, we've got to dive in a little more into the context and history to find out who Jack is and what this lantern's deal is. To be upfront, I usually assume that a lot of words that have pervaded through culture because of their commerciality don't have origins that I would think are very cool. And, you know, usually they have weird, shitty origins. But jack-o'-lanterns, like a lot of traditions that have long, complex, and syncretic histories that have evolved for hundreds or thousands of years, are actually incredibly interesting, and their modern commercial iterations are their least interesting incarnations. So jack-o'-lanterns are also related to will-o'-wisps, a strange and mischievous creature, but we'll get to will-o'-wisps a little bit later. The origin that we're going to focus on today is how jack-o'-lanterns evolved in mostly Irish tradition, but this history can be applied to how the term appeared all over Europe, and we even have some incredibly connected stories that appear in cultures all over the planet. As for the pumpkin carving, firstly, before pumpkins were carved, turnips, rutabagas, and beets were carved into jack-o'-lanterns. The switch to pumpkins occurred because of what became available to Irish immigrants on Turtle Island, pumpkins being plentiful and native here. Y'all should really look up some pictures of turnip jack-o'-lanterns. They are somehow much more frightening than most pumpkins that I've ever seen. But let's, let's break down the word a little more. Jack, the name, doesn't have any especially interesting origins by itself, except that it became a sort of any whom turn, ter- sorry, any whom term, much like John Doe in the United States. When we see the word Jack appearing as part of a name, phrase, or object like Union Jack or Jackass or Jack the Ripper, it's the same anonymous Jack. O is a prefix in Irish that means of or with or descended from. Lantern is from the Greek lampter, which means beacon, or from lampion meaning to give light, and contains the word lap, meaning to burn. So again, literally, jack, with, or giving light to, the beacon, burning brightly. So why does Jack have the lantern? This is really where the story starts to get interesting. There's quite a bit of easy folklore on the why, and first we're going to look at a piece of folklore from Irish Catholic tradition, which I believe is syncretic in nature, having been influenced by practices from Celtic paganism. And we're going to work our way backwards in time, because I think the story will flow a little bit better that way for this term. So first, we have the story of Stingy Jack, or Drunk Jack, or Jack the Smith, who was this figure in folklore known for being a bit of a cunning manipulator. But let's call him clever. He, he was also known for being kind of a, a rake and, like, you know, not, not, not a great person. Um, and, you know, Jack, for whatever reason, gains the attention of the devil, who I think is just excited to meet this, like, person that he's heard about. Is like, oh, Jack's, like, Jack's fucking crazy. Like, and the devil's like, I got to go check this person out and claim his soul. So he goes to meet Jack at a bar, hoping to steal his soul and you know he kind of tells him just that and so before being carted off to hell jack asks to have a drink with the devil you know one last drink and the devil agrees 
After the drink, Jack asks the devil the devil to pay the tab, seeing as he's going to hell and also doesn't have any money. Um, and the devil, surprisingly, also doesn't have any money. So Jack suggests that the devil turn himself into a coin that Jack will use to pay the tab and they can pull one last one over on the bartender because the devil would just change back later. And so, you know, they, they conned this bartender out of, out of a drink or two. And so, you know, the devil agrees thinking like, that's a, that's a good idea, Jack. You, you, I see, I see where you got your eye for mischief. And so the devil turns into a silver coin, which Jack promptly puts into his pocket next to a crucifix, which prevents the devil from transforming back from being a coin. And then, you know, Jack just runs out on the bar tab. (laughs) Um, Later, after carrying the devil around in his pocket for kind of a long time, Uh, Jack agrees to let the devil free if the devil agrees to never take his soul to hell. And the devil agrees. And Jack frees the devil, and the devil, being true to his word, leaves Jack alone. Many years later, Jack dies of natural causes. His soul goes to St. Peter's Gate to be judged, and Peter is like, fuck no, I'm not letting you into heaven. You are a capital S sinner. So Jack's soul goes to the gates of hell where the devil refuses to let him in because of the promise he made Jack many years before, never to take his soul. And so instead, the devil gives Jack one burning coal ember to light his way through the darkness, which Jack puts in a hollowed out turnip to carry around doomed to wander the mortal world as a ghostly spirit for all of eternity. And so for some, the practice of making jack-o'-lanterns and putting them in the houses, in a window, the windows of houses, was to ward off evil spirits or the associ, which are fairies, or Jack himself, or just to represent Jack, who's doomed to wander the night with this ghostly light. They would carve the faces of demons and monsters to scare other things away because Halloween or Samhain was a time when the veil between the mortal world and the other world was especially thin. Jack's soul can be interpreted in a few different ways in Catholicism, and we're going to try to tackle this briefly because unraveling any part of the story leads to, should I do an entire history of Halloween? And the, the answer is yes, but I don't have the time to. But before we talk about Jack's soul, we have to know some of the history of Halloween. And to know some of the history of Halloween, we have to know the history of its precursor, Samhain, that funny-looking word that looks like it should be pronounced Samhain. Samhain is a festival celebrated in Celtic paganism and Wicca. Samhain was a harvest festival when great protective bonfires were lit when the veil to the other world was the thinnest. During this time, it was easy to encounter denizens of the other world, whether it was the gods, the associ, mischievous fairy-like creatures, or the souls of humans who had died. Samhain comes from the proto-Celtic word Simoni, which means reunion or assembly. And so Samhain was thought of as an assembly for the living and the dead to commingle. During this festival, Offerings were made to the gods and the associ to appease them from committing mischief and harm against the living and to the harvest as they prepared to survive winter. 
other offerings were made to the souls of humans who had died to honor and ease their passing. Spirits would wander the night and visit the homes of, that they resided in in life, and so meals and plates were set at tables for the ghosts of family members, ancestors, and others who had lived in those areas that came before them and their families. In this case, jack-o'-lanterns, like the great bonfires, were used to guide spirits in rather than ward them off. This was a time for remembering the dead and peacefully and lovingly communing with them. There's this whole bit about the horned god too, but we, we don't have time for that. You can see some of the origins of trick-or-treating here. Samhain was later sort of supplanted by All Saints Day in a targeted move by Pope Gregory III to get people to stop celebrating Samhain, um, or as others might say, to further wrap Celtic paganism into Catholicism. All Saints Day was November 1st, and it was a day to remember Christian martyrs, and All Hallows' Eve was the night before, and it was a time to pray for the dead. And All Hallows' Eve would eventually become Halloween. And now that we have that foundation, <laughs> let's get back to Jack's soul and that lantern. In the story of Stingy Jack, the state of Jack's soul at the end, wandering the night endlessly, is reflective of the conundrum of, uh, in Christian... Sorry is reflective of the conundrum in Christianity of purgatory or souls being caught between heaven and hell. Notably, unbaptized souls could be trapped in purgatory like those of unbaptized children. People would go door to door carrying with them jack-o'-lanterns carved from turnips and housing candles that represented the souls of those lost to purgatory, sometimes the souls of their own departed family members. It was a time for communal prayer, for the welfare of the dead, and special masses would even be held with families carrying the souls of their dead family members and turnip lanterns to um, kind of like post-mortemly like baptize or like save those souls, um, which is really familiar to me growing up Catholic. It's like makes me think of those like candles that you see um, in the, not the rectory, I forget what the, the foyer in the church is called, whatever. However... <laughs> During the Protestant Reformation, this practice fell out of fashion because Protestant, Protestantism did not like the idea that souls could be saved like this, which is a little complicated by the fact that um, many of the poor would go to houses of the rich to pray for wealthy families, recently departed family members, hoping that it would curry favor with God, you know, prayer points. The wealthy would give them alms in return or food and money. And this gets into the idea of alms in the commons, another really interesting thing that we don't have time to get into. So, yeah, prayer points are weird, but the poor demanding alms was kind of cool. Um, and this, this practice would uh, later go on to be called souling. So you would go out on All Hallows Eve and go souling, which kind of sounds really cool, actually. Okay, so we're... Almost at the end, we've we've just got to connect will-o'-wisps and what's up with them. The name will-o'-wisp has the same origins as jack-o'-lantern, uh, but English and a guy named Will. But there, there's like, like this identical story like called like Will the Smith about Will the Smith outsmarting the devil. They're just, just different names. But a will-o'-wisp or sometimes like jack-o'-lanterns, um, would be called like there's like the differentiation between like carving a pumpkin jack-o'-lantern and a 
Jack of the Lantern, which is more like a will-o'-wisp and thought of as these like ethereal balls of light that would like wander around in the night sky. Um, but so will-o'-wisps have kind of some other mythology surrounding them. They're creatures of ethereal and fleeting light that wander the night. Sometimes they're thought to be fairies and sometimes they're thought to be unbaptized souls wandering the earth. When they're fairies, they're a mixed bag. Sometimes they're called hob lanterns, which you can guess from previous Word of the Month episodes is related to a very famous fairy, Hob or Rob or Robin Goodfellow or Puck. Um, in these lanterns, these hob lantern will-o'-wisps would mislead night wanderers laughing at their harm, to quote Midsummer Night's Dream, where they talk a lot about will-o'-wisps. Um, and, but they would also, you know, sometimes lead people to treasure. There was no way to tell really what would happen. <laughs> and so most people came to avoid these creatures that would especially show up near swamps and bogs. Uh, will-o'-wisps appear in mythology all throughout the world in similar manners. In Sweden, if you leave out milk for them, then they might graze your cows for you in like a secret pasture, especially when like the like your pasture is overgrazed. They like know a cool spot that's secret where your cows will get really healthy. Um, but also in Sweden, they might be the souls of unbaptized people that lead people to bodies of water, not to, you know, drown unsuspecting travelers, which is what I assumed at first, but to try to convince those travelers to baptize them so that they can leave purgatory. In Latin, they're called ignis fatis, or foolish fire. Uh, sometimes will-o'-wisps are called fox fire, which is not attributed to foxes, but is a mishearing of the French word for false fire or faux fire, which kind of looks like fox, you know? So, fox fire. However, and this is, this is the wild part, in Japan, they're sometimes created by um, two kitsune, or fox spirits, procreating, and they're called kitsunibi, or fox fire. <laughs> and other names include ghost lights, ghost candles, goblin light, money lights, treasure lights, swamp candles, hobby lanterns, like hob lanterns or hobbity lanterns, fairy fire, or pukaton in Welsh, puka being the original derivation of the character Puck. Um, they're linked to Irish traditional ballads about encountering the souls of dead lovers in the forest. Will-o'-wisps and jack-o'-lanterns are just everywhere. And all of this is to say that jack-o'-lantern as a term has a long and surprisingly amazing history, whether thinking about them as helpful goblins who might help you find treasure, uh, mischievous sprites that mislead you, trying to get you lost, a candle and a petitioner's lantern for their, their unbaptized child's soul, the soul of a wanderer who outsmarted the devil, or the guiding lights of families welcoming in their dead ancestors to a wholesome meal. That's the deal with Jack and his lantern, a beacon for the dead, giving light to their remembrance. We could get into how this relates to the wild hunt, but we'll save that one till I, till I inevitably talk about the wild hunt near Imbolc or St. Bridget's Day in February. This Samhain, which is today as this is first being aired, um, carve a lantern and think about the dead, the night, 
and the treasures you hope to find, and maybe outsmart God along the way. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, then tune in next month to see how the story ends and how this story about a center-right prepper relates to anarchism. You can also tell people about the show. Um, put it, you know, put it on while canning food for your bunker of the soul. Also, you can rate and review and like and subscribe or whatever the algorithm calls for. Feed it like a hungry god. But really just tell people about it. It's the main way that people hear about the show and honestly one of the best ways to support it. However, if you want to support us in other sillier ways that don't involve feeding a nameless and mysterious entity, consider supporting the show financially by subscribing to our Patreon. If you subscribe to our Patreon at $10 a month, we will mail to you a zine version of the pieces that you hear here here, every month, anywhere in the world. You can also get access to an archive of Old Strangers content, as well as discounts on things like t-shirts and books we publish. Find us at patreon.com slash strangers in a tangled wilderness. Our theme music is by Margaret Kiljoy. Our zine layout is by Cassandra. And thanks to the lovely mountain goblins that mail out the feature every month. I would like to give some special shout outs to these wonderful people who have helped make this podcast as well as so many other projects possible. Thank you, Patoli, Eric, Percival, Buck, Julia, Catgut, Marm, Carson, Lord Harkin, Trickster, Princess Miranda, Ben Ben, Anonymous, Funder, Janice and Odell, Allie, Paparuna, Milica, Boys Mutual Aid, Theo, Hunter, SJ, Paige, Nicole, David, Dana, Chelsea, Starro, Jennifer, Kirk, Chris, Micaiah, and the Eternal, Haas the Dog. Thank you so much for your support. It means so much to us and has allowed us to get so much done as a collective. And lastly, a lot of these features on the podcast come from listeners like you. So if you feel like a stranger that would like to find their story a home in this tangled wilderness, oh my God, wait, doesn't that sound so eerily like will-o'-wisps wandering through the night to the homes of their, the wilderness of the, the, the dead and home and the... Sorry. If you feel like a stranger that would like to find their story a home in this tangled wilderness, consider submitting it. Free it from the bunker of your mind. Next month, we have part two of Blood, Soil, and Frozen TV Dinners by Matthew Dougal, along with an interview with Matt. Stay well. We hope you come back. <laughs>